Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today Allison Punch is back to help us break down The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington for The Stacks Book Club. The book is an in-depth look at the neglect, scandal, and lack of oversight in the death investigation industry. There are no spoilers this week. If you're not sure about this book, check out The Short Stacks episode 17 with Radley Balco, where he gives a peek into this book and how it came to be. For more on everything we we discuss on today's episode and links to the Stack social media and Allison social media accounts. Click the link in the show notes. Also, if you shop through the link in the show notes, you're helping to keep the Stacks free. Every other week, I host a virtual book club with other listeners at the Stacks where we discuss the most recent book from the show. If you're interested in joining us, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks. You can be a part of this community and help make sure we continue to make episodes that you love. Keep spreading the word about the stacks, whether it's by telling a friend, writing a review, or sharing that you love the show on social media. I see all of you and I appreciate you so much. So keep it up. All right. Now it's time for my conversation with Allison Punch about The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington. All right, everybody. We are back again this week with the lovely Allison Punch. Allison, welcome back. Thank you. Yay. Um, We're talking today for the Sax Book Club about The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. It's written by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington. I don't think we're going to spoil this book because it's nonfiction and there's not a lot to spoil, though there is like some information that you maybe wouldn't know or like kind of like the fallout. But I feel mostly from the beginning, the book kind of tells you what it is. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about spoilers, we did interview Radley Balco a few weeks ago. And you can find that on the short stacks. I believe it's short stacks number 17. So if you're interested in a totally, totally, totally spoiler-free conversation about this book, check it out. If you're on the fence or you think you won't read the book, I think you're safe to listen either way. Um, so we're going to start where we always start. Allison, what did you think of this book? Okay. So I I liked it a lot. I think I, I wasn't sure how I would feel about it. I think that it the pace of it was interesting because like when it went back into the hit, it went it, so it starts out by sort of laying the scene of um the crimes that it i thought it was only going to focus on those two crimes but it talks about so much more it talks about the history of coroners it talks about like all different types of history so it was like very up and down honestly at times this book was really confusing to me because it was just so hard to wrap my head around how corrupt right. and messed up all of this 
like is like I first of all I didn't know that there was a difference between coroners and medical professionals and also it was confusing to me because it was so not aligned with CSI and I was like (laughs) I knew that that was fiction but I didn't know how fiction it was and it was just like my world shifted sure what did you think um I liked the book I, for whatever reason in my life, the week that I was reading this book, really struggled to like get into it. It never quite fully clicked with me. I think also because Mr. Stacks read it before me and was like, oh my God, it's amazing. I could read it in like two days. Yeah, you told me So I think that I thought that it was going to be like really catchy from Jump and it wasn't catchy for me, like in the same way that like Just Mercy is like unputdownable. It's not quite that. No, definitely not. But- the information in it is wild, like mind-blowing. I think in the introduction, they're like, you're going to laugh, you're going to cry, you're going to be like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? And I definitely like felt a lot of those kind of feelings. I mean, I didn't cry because I don't really cry when I read. It takes a lot. Um, but I definitely was like, this is sad and like this is great and this is horrible and I can't believe it. Um, I also felt like I had issues with the author's points of view mm. sometime. Mm-hmm. I don't know which author is which. I don't know who is who. Like they write it kind of in one voice. But there were some points of view where I was like, I don't I don't think that you're going deep enough. I, I think, totally agree. Yeah. Especially when it came to like race and class. I think that there was a little bit of like, we don't want to go there or like we don't know how to go there or we actually don't even see yeah, this stuff. Totally. So I don't, I don't hold it against them. Like, I don't think it was malicious, but I think that it was like a, a large gaping hole where, you know, because race is such a huge part totally. and like anti-blackness is such a huge part of the criminal justice system in America. And this book takes place specifically in Mississippi mm-hmm. and a little in Louisiana. And like those places are notorious for being terrible, terrible, terrible. And they kind of go into like the history of like Jim Crow and like the yeah. lynching. And then they kind of like leave that history in a way that oh I felt God, like. so true. Yeah. In a way that I kind of felt like, are we going to bring that back? Are we going to talk about how this is the same? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't. Yeah, no, it doesn't pass the like anti-racist smell test. So no. first of all, I started reading this book and I was like, okay, this is a book by white men. So like, and you were like, it's about racism. And I was like, I don't know. But right. the first thing in the introduction, he's like, well, Hayne is not racist. He was married to a black right. woman. I literally took that. And note. I was just like, like, it's like the prickles up on my back are like, whoosh, you know, right. it's like, that does not know. Right. Did you listen to the conversation that yes. I had with Radley Balco? So I was go ahead. Can I, okay, I was about to say that. So listening to that conversation on the short sex made sense to me because I was like, "This is legal stuff. Mm-hmm. This is them trying to not get sued by Hain." Right. But at the same time, like it's still cowardly. Right. <laughs> like it's still, you know, I, think you just I don't leave know. It out. Yeah, like it was just so like his intent, his intent, his intent, and it's like racism is not about intent. Like it's right. about power and policies, and you know, like. So we were just talking before about how Kendi blurbed it. And I was yeah. shocked because this book does not seem to play with his like, you know, racist policies are put in like racist ideas are put in place to support racist policies. And this it just like it did it. You know, I think that the black wife thing really, really pissed me off because you just can't say that someone's not racist because they have a black wife. That's not how that works. Right. No, I agree. I mean, that's something I took that note. It's in the introduction. It happens again later in the book. Yeah. And I, I think that like when I took the note, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> but then after I spoke to Radley Balco and he talked a lot about how like they spent months and months with legal, Yeah. it feels like 
I think the correct choice would have just been to remove that from the book yeah. and to not comment one way or the other if they thought he was or wasn't racist. Yeah. Because if you're only citing the evidence that you think that he's not racist because he has a white wife or black wife yeah. for a short period of time versus like the history of yeah. his his work, I think if you feel like you can't draw a strong conclusion that's backed up by facts, I think you just have to remove that. So I think it's damaging to say – He's not – He's. they kind of were like, he's not necessarily racist because right. he was married to a black woman. It's kind of like, well, okay, maybe he's not necessarily racist, but also maybe you just have to pull this out. Like maybe you just have right. to say we don't – this is inconclusive and we don't want to go anywhere near that. And I feel like I would have respected that choice more. Well, I think you're so right. They spend all this time talking about like history of like how coroners and medical. Ex- I don't, I'm saying that weirdly. Cor- cor- coroners. <laughs> saying how coroners um, yeah. are. There's all this history about how coroners are used to uphold white supremacy, like in the, you know, lynching and all of that things that I thought were really well written. But it's so true what you said. Like, and then he goes into this like 90s stuff, Hain and West, and it's like, race is just not there it's like disconnected from the history right and if you aren't familiar the history basically because there is a difference between a coroner and a medical examiner i'm going to do a shitty job explaining it they do a very good job in the book and also if you want a shorter but better job you should check out john oliver he does a piece on it Mm. um, which we also talked about with radley balco but it's very quick and explains it basically a medical examiner is a doctor md someone who's gone to medical school and they're pathologists. Their job is to look at bodies and figure out why they died. A coroner comes from like the Middle Ages. It was a political position. It was a knighted position in Britain. It then, when it came to America, it kind of was like they only investigated deaths that were suspicious, but it was either elected or appointed. So it had a lot of politics around it. And in the Jim Crow South, it became a way to exonerate people for crimes that were committed against black people. So there would be a lynching and the coroner would come and say, I investigated and we can't figure out who did it. Or this wasn't a murder. This wasn't really a lynching. This person had a heart attack and then shot themselves. Or like they would make up these crazy answers to, to let the white folks off. So it kind of has this like very uh, political and racist history. In addition to being connected to money, it's not, it was not a paid position, but you could make money and you could also take money from victims like off their person. And so it was kind of this like crazy corrupt industry. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the history that we're given before we get in specifically to, um, Stephen Hain and Michael West. And Michael West. I'm like, what's his name? Stephen Hain and Michael West, who are the cadaver king, Stephen Hain, who's the coroner. And then the country dentist is Michael West, who is a dentist by day, but he also is a jack of all trades of forensic bullshit. And those people seem to be very removed from the history that we have gotten in the first few pages of the book. Yeah. And I think that it's just, yeah, it wasn't really connected it it like he's like this lays the sa- the scene for them right. but then there's no race and class analysis of the bullshit that they that like the did. actual things that yeah. they perpetrated and i do think that some of that was like legal stuff which is a bummer but i also feel like you've got to figure out a way to draw that line right because like i think some readers will see it and i think some readers will not necessarily see it and like when you put it in the 90s and the 2000s there's this way that you can kind of go around it and say oh racism was doesn't exist anymore or whatever or it's not the same right. as it was or it's they weren't lynching these were murders committed by people you know i also think like 
they don't really talk about the race of the victims mm-hmm. or the guy who actually committed the murders, Johnson. Yeah. So we know that um, we know that Levon Brooks and Kennedy, Kennedy Brewer. Brewer <laughs> really doing good with names today. We know that Levon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer are both black men. Um, and that's stated expressly in the book. And those are kind of like our two – there are two case studies that the book kind of is anchored in and it goes on much more about the cadaver king and the country dentist. But we know that those two are black men. But like it's not expressly stated that's that true. either of the children or the family – I think the assumption is that they are, but it's not expressly stated, which I thought was an interesting Weird. choice. Yeah. I would say like with this book, I did really like it. I do feel like I learned a lot and I have new language, which is what I'm always looking for when I read nonfiction is like new language to talk about something. But it was more about like the specific, right – coroner, medical examiner, forensic, junk science sort of a thing. I feel like if you're looking to learn about the criminal justice system, this is not the only book you should be reading. No. Like you need to be reading Just Mercy or The New Jim right. Crow or both and then maybe read this book. But yeah, I don't know. So I think yeah. And this book is different than those other books because it's not so much about the incarceration of either of the two men. Right. It really is like a deep dive into this forensic science and like how it's bullshit and how how it's so deeply entrenched in in this case Mississippi, but it felt like Mississippi was indicative of everywhere. Every state. I mean, it happened in Texas, it happened in like I just was reading this book and I was like, How do any crimes ever get solved? Right. I don't know. I don't believe that they do anymore. Right. So they say in the book that 2 to 10% of all convictions are actually wrongful convictions, which means in a prison population of 2.3 million, you can see anywhere between 46,000 and 230,000 innocent people locked away, which is – that's a lot of people. Like five people feels like a lot if that person's your cousin or that person's you. But 230,000 people who are wrongfully convicted, that's terrifying. And especially if you look – I mean if you add race and class analysis, right? Right. Like the people who don't have resources to properly defend themselves, so that's a class analysis. Or the people who are viewed by society as criminals because of anti-blackness in America, that's race analysis and that's just like – that's not right. Really so one of the things that is in so the introduction or the forward is written by John Grisham, which I thought was like kind of so weird and cool and interesting. And I know that he does a lot of work with the Mississippi um, Innocence Project, and like I think he's like a, kind of like the patron saint of them. And he's he writes this introduction, and one of the things he talks about are the eight different reasons for wrongful conviction, mm. and how in this book the two guys are. Um, both victims of all eight, which usually he's like, it could be a storm of a few or all of them. But here's what he says they are. One is, and he says in no particular order. So bad police work, prosecutorial misconduct, false confessions, faulty eyewitnesses, jailhouse snitches, bad lawyering, sleeping judges, and junk science. And I feel like definitely in this book, these people, both men are definitely the victim of all of these like pretty clearly and in your face i think maybe one is not the victim of jailhouse snitch one is and one isn't yeah but otherwise it's like pretty egregious and aggressive and i just wonder like what other industries and and parts of life in american society are also this fucked up Mm. 
Like this was kind of like, holy shit, I had no yeah. idea. But that's got to mean the other. Well, it just sucks because like everything about the criminal justice system is so messed up, right? Like policing, there's so much racial, bi- racial bias, misconduct, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to the judges and then you get to this and then you get to that. And it's just like every at every level – Right. It's corrupt and racist. Right. right. And it's like, unless someone confesses not falsely to a crime and there's evidence to back up their confession and they're not coerced to confess because they want like a lesser sentence. Right. Like there's just really no way. I mean, there are ways to know, but it like gets really hard. And then the amount of arrests and prosecution that people are doing. Like the amount of crimes you can go to jail for, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to jail for everything. Like, and then, yeah, I just think like this also is just like society views people as disposable who right. have committed crimes. Right. And it's like, who even determines what is a crime? And right. like, who even determines what is criminal? I don't... Right. Well, so one of the things they say in this book that I think I think is worth spending a little time on is they say that they're okay with locking up people with junk science or for committing small crimes because likely they committed other crimes or like likely they they could have done something else that they just didn't get caught for which is so racialized right. like or and class you know it's like what what does that even mean like right everyone has committed a crime right sure. like these two like Stephen Hayne and Michael West are committing crime because they're right. committing perjury right Right. But like that this idea like that it's okay. Like after I finished reading the book and I was talking to Mr. Sachs about it, we were saying he was saying like how can these people sleep at night? I'm like it's actually shockingly easy for them yeah. because they feel like they're doing the work of of right. getting bad people off the street. Yeah. You know, getting these bad these bad hombres off the street, right? Oh my gosh. And it's like because that's the thing about West is he is never able to come up with a suspect on his own. He's only able to match, like, once the, the police or the deck detectives have a suspect, he, then he's able to, like, match the top of their teeth to this bite mark, quote, unquote, that is right. really just an animal or something that bit this kid. Right. And, okay, I'm sorry. Like, not to be crass about the kid dying, but it's like, that, it's so, it's total bullshit and it's so baffling that it's able to be allowed, but everyone believes him because he's the view of authority, which is like this, you know, white man with these degrees and right and all this money. And have you ever done jury duty? No, me neither. Damn. I wish you had. I wanted to talk about uh, it. Um, I've never well, I believe it. in jury nullification. So I hope that I am a jury um, person. What do but, you mean? What do you mean you well, believe in jury nullification? Well, I don't know. Maybe we, it's too much, but so like. Jury nullification is this concept that I learned about from Professor Paul Butler, who talks about how, like, if you believe, if you don't agree in a law, like you don't believe in the drug war, you should be on the jury and then vote that they're not guilty, even if the evidence is that they're guilty, hmm. because you don't believe in the the law. I so, see. like, if you're, you know, someone for like, um, bas- I mean, mostly drug crimes, right? right? Like, you can say they're not guilty because you don't believe in. Interesting. I never heard of that. Mm-hmm. It's from um, Let's Get Free, a hip hop theory of justice. I like it. I will even enjoy your nullification. Um, but like one of the things that comes up in this book about this science, which is quote unquote science, because the field of forensics actually isn't based in science. It's based in law enforcement. Which is fascinating. I which just I thought was fascinating. That. I didn't know that either. I just assumed it was science because it's called science. Right. But 
the way in which science is allowed, like that was one of the things that was fascinating. The way in which science is, is or is not allowed in the courtroom for juries, it made me really freaked out about being like if you had to be on a jury of like a big case, case yeah. because there's two you're there were asking you to know too much slash they're expecting you not to know anything so that they can just like dupe you. Well, and the thing they talk about this in the book, which again, it was very confusing for me because it was just so far from reality. The way like science is accepted in the courtroom once it has been like widely quote unquote, like widely accepted in the field. And it's like, what does that, what does that mean? Right. Um, and that's not clear. It's just totally up to, they're basically relying on the judge to be an arbiter of like, what is good science or not, which the judges don't know. And so if they think, oh, well, other judges have ruled on this, then it right. must be good science. So they allow it to be in their courtroom when it isn't. Right. But then that puts all the onus on the, the jury. Yeah. Oh, and the jury. And the worst part about it is, can we talk about the, um, I forget what it's called, but when these people were trying to then, this maybe is a spoiler, like, because it happens at the end of the book, when these people are then trying to overturn their conviction. Oh, yeah. And they say, you must, in order to uh, overturn or to challenge a conviction as wrongful, you must challenge it within one year of when you knew that, like, the evidence was faulty. Right. So this is like 2010, 2013 or something. Yeah. And these people are trying to challenge their convictions because Hain and West by this point have been widely discredited. Again, not really a spoiler. Like we knew this was coming. Um, That's why they're so like defensive of him, whatever. But then at this point, the judges say, oh, well, you know, people talked about how Hain was a quack in 2006. So we're not, it's been too late. You had only until 2007. But people were still being prosecuted with his evidence from like 2006 to 2010. And people are still being like he's still he was still a witness at that time yeah, true, for the state not, and the defense. Yeah. Like he was still defending old convictions and becoming a prime witness for the defense. Yeah, that it's really that's really like the jig, as they say. You know, the there's jig just is up. no way of ever because well because everyone involved is so defensive of this work. So like police officers or um, prosecutors don't want to discredit Hain because then they will have to examine all the thousands of cases that Hain has been involved in and say like, oops, we fucked up where they don't want to have to do that. So they just are just continuing to allow him to, you know, do his junk. Right. Right. It's just, it's like no one wants to be responsible for or no one wants to admit yeah, that they that they had any accountability yeah. for any of it, which is like, you know, another great John Oliver segment is when he talks mm. about attorneys generals. That's what they're called in plural, Attorney. I believe. Attorneys generals. Really? Yeah, it's something weird like that. It's very confusing. <laughs> I hate it because I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but it's not attorney generals. It's attorneys generals. Wow. Anyways. You learned something new. Yeah. He has a great segment on attorneys generals where he talks about like how because like, you know, it's an elected position and like, you know, some judges are elected and all this, that a lot of the time the politics of getting elected get in the way Mm -hmm. of the actual doing the right or wrong, even though like I didn't know this. I can't remember what book it was that I read, but I did not know until relatively recently that the attorney general or like the defense or the, sorry, the prosecution they're actually required by their oath or by law or whatever, whatever standards they're allegedly held to, they are required to throw out 
cases if they find out that there's something like fishy going on. Mm. But they don't because they're more concerned about getting convictions because that's like one of the How ways they that they run crime. yeah, in the future. So messed up. Same with judges. If a judge yeah. knows mm-hmm. that something's mm-hmm. not right or like someone lied or something something does not match or the science isn't right, they're also supposed to declare a mistrial. And they often don't, especially in places like Mississippi where they're running – not to disparage Mississippi, but like where they're running in a state that's tough on crime and like we're being liberal on the death penalty is looked at as a negative because they know that that will get held against them. And we hear that a ton in the book about like how this person voted to acquit a child murderer. How dare he? Right. But it's like, that's not what happened. This wasn't the person that killed the child. Right. And not only that, but you have, not only do you have an innocent man on death row, but you have a man who murdered a child running around free. Well, who murdered two children and he could have been caught the Mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, like, not even to talk about the crimes that were so disgusting and just wild and horrible, but child murder and sexual assault of three-year-old girls, gross. Really awful. Really awful. Yeah. And the second one could have been prevented had they caught him the first time, but instead they put an innocent man in jail because they just wanted to get that conviction. Right. Who also had an alibi. I'm so confused. He was literally at his job with people. It reminded me. I need to know what the transcript of I want to see that courtroom scene between the defense attorney when he like, did he not call? Well, he did. But I think it's like that's like the racism, right? Because you probably had a predominantly white jury who is like, okay, well, these black people are just not trustworthy, which is so un. So problematic. And it reminded me of Just Mercy a lot. And that guy who wasn't – he had a fish fry. Right. And – Right. But this guy, didn't he clock in? He was at work. Yeah. Wasn't there – like I I understand – I can understand in Just Mercy, he's at a fish fr- at a fish fry for his whole family with his whole family and his alibi is his family. Yeah. Like at least I'm like, okay. But this dude was at work. Like yeah. people were patrons that day. Like people who probably don't even like him were patrons that day. Yeah. It's just like what – I mean – I I act like I'm really surprised. Like, I can't believe this would happen. But also the other part of me is like, of course it happened. Mm -hmm. It's more like feigned surprise and strong anger. It's just frustration because it does feel very hopeless. Yeah. It just feels like what what do you do? How how do you – how do we do better? And, you know, part of it is like – They talk about how – so medical examiners are doctors, which means they had to go through med school and a residency and they had to like become a doctor to do the work. And a lot of doctors don't want to be pathologists. They don't want to deal with dead bodies. They Mm -hmm. want to help people. They Mm -hmm. got into the field to heal illness or cure cancer or deliver babies or treat diabetes or whatever it is. And like I think that it's not super attractive – to be like, I'm going to be in a room with dead bodies right. all day and deal with murder. And it doesn't pay as well as like yeah. the other ones. And like deal with not just dead bodies, but also the police right. and attorneys mm-hmm. and bureaucracy all day. Ugh, I wouldn't want to do it. Neither. <laughs> yeah, but like how do you get people to want to do it? Like what what does the government need to do to incentivize people to go into – pathology. Well, I mean, Stephen Hayne was able to make like over a million dollars a year. And so it's like, how do we get people involved without all of those kickbacks? Because what happened was he got involved with the like, once if they get involved with the mortuary side of things, then they can make a lot of money. Right. Um, But well, and Stephen Hayne was doing like a billion. Yeah. So 
kajillion. For people who haven't read the book, the standard body of forensic medical examiners, I don't know, whatever the term, they recommend like three to three, two to three hundred a year, three hundred a year um, autopsies. This man was doing over a thousand and proud of it. Fifteen hundred. And that's impossible. They did the math. I don't know if you remember the part where they did the math. It was like two math. to three hours. It was like three hours an autopsy, which is the minimum that's recommended. But with the math, they said that he would have had – That includes no zero days for hobbies, uh, for naps, for vacation, <laughs> Food, for days eating. off, for eating, for anything else. So like there's no way he was spending the recommended three hours even, even if he worked every single day. Like he's – is he eating over right. – I just really don't understand. Well, oh, and then they have parts where he's like, um, he was like testifying or including in a report about this person's uterus. And it was like a like biological male, like a right. cisgender man. Right. Like there were mistakes that were made or like about like someone's like appendix, but then who had been, ta- had had taken, been out. taken out yeah. and like things that he missed or like wrote or things that not even things that he missed, things that he wrote in his notes, like healthy appendix. And it was like this person's appendix was taken out 25 years Mm -hmm, ago. mm -hmm. So like that he was falsifying his reports, not just – because they make the point like there is a world in which you don't comment on the lack of an appendix because you don't really notice it. But there isn't a world in which you see a healthy appendix when there is none. And and then again, like just the lack of accountability where everyone else involved in the system didn't want to question him because if they, they – he, he made their jobs easier and their lives easier and he right. put people away. And so they like loved him, but then they failed to catch all of these red flags and still have had no accountability for their lack of um, – Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last – Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So what's the solution? Is there, does there need to be some sort of like, like systemification, um, what, that's not the word. What's the word? Um, standardization of what science is allowed or. Well, so that's the thing too, is he, he lied about his certification. So he wasn't, he's had to be board certified by the specific board, but he would say I'm forensic science or whatever. Like he, he did the like junk one. Yeah. Like the pay, pay, pay to play. Yeah, exactly. So he was able to just lie about that. So, I mean, I don't know, like, actual but listening to the certifications not just like allowing him to ju- smudge the right whatever and but like i guess what I i'm asking know. is like how can you expect any defense attorney whose to job know. it is, is yeah. to defend people and most likely a lot of the defense attorneys who are tasked with this are the ones who are defending people who can't afford yeah. a private attorney who have a bunch of who have a bunch of clients who are like exhausted themselves and don't have the resources to do all the work like there's got to be some sort of governing body or something that says or like a list you know what the solution is prison abolition i don't think (laughs) there's any other solution because we have to stop viewing people as like as expendable and stop you know once you commit a crime then you are completely out there's i don't think there's any way to reform the system i think i don't even i can't think of one other than to just scrap it and move to a transformative justice model i want you to talk about prison abolition because it's kind of like a hot topic and i feel like people hear that and think like you're advocating that like no people who ever do anything wrong should have any punishment i don't know like the nuts and bolts of how it works. I will say the book that turned me into a prison abolitionist was Invisible No More by Andrea J. Ritchie. Mm -hmm. Um, because I read that book and I was like, there's no way to reform the system. Right. Like there's no way to fix this organization that is corrupt and racist on every single level. I don't know. I'm going to get someone who's like, I'm a cop and I'm a good person listening to this. That's not what I'm saying. Like I'm saying it's systematic, right? Because there's the system and then there's the individual. Individuals can be good, but systems are broken. Prison abolition. I mean, I think transformative justice is like centering the survivor. So centering the person who was targeted by the harm and saying, like, what do you want? Right. Um, but then you have people who can would be, want who prison. can be like overly lenient or overly vindictive. Yeah. Right. Well, oh, I wish I had the book that I'm reading now, Pleasure Activism. She just defined transformative justice. And I underlined it. I was like, I need to remember this. And I forgot it. But it's. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because I think that the thing is, is like, we have criminals running around now, right? Because in this book, like, what Johnson, he was free for however many years. And I think, like, also, if you look at prisons, people who are sent away for nonviolent offenses into these high max security prisons, and then are around, like, 
terrible criminal criminal you know like i don't know again violent offenders yeah violent offenders or people who actually have like killed other human beings and you put in like a low level like someone who sold like 30 dollars worth of weed in with someone who has murdered six people that person you know that's like how we have a recidivism problem i mean among lack of like finances i don't know i'm not the expert so i hope no one quotes me on this and also debate me if i'm saying something wrong but I don't, yeah, I don't know the solution. That's not my area of policy. Right. But I know, I mean, I'm not a policy person. I don't know how it would work, but I just, it's not working now. Right. It doesn't work now. I I mean, I am all for major overhaul yeah. prison. I don't know if I'm a prison abolitionist because I don't think that I know enough yeah. for sure. But I do feel like within the confines, uh, some of the confines, I guess, of what prison is now, I think that like we have to have a much more diligent system of sending people to prison. Okay. So this is the thing that she said in Pleasure Activism. I just remembered. She says addressing the system that created the individual too. Sure. So like if you have someone who has mental health problems and so they are like the, the, the person in this book, Johnson, he has a mental health challenge. And again, not everyone who has mental health mental illnesses is violent. Right. Let me just if Reiterate this is that. what you're yeah. saying, if this is what you hear me saying, that's not what I'm saying. Just because you have mental health illness does not mean you are going to be violent. If there is someone who the reason why they are violent is because they have untreated mental illness, like then the solution would be to treat their mental right. illness. Or if they have someone who is, I mean, stealing a loaf of bread, right? Because right. they're poor, then the solution is to help them get the resources to live a life in which they can provide for themselves. Right. So it's like addressing the system and not just punishing the individual for the system that created right. those conditions. Because I think like overall... This or might addiction. Be a, yeah. This might be like an overly general statement, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Most people don't want to commit crimes. Yeah. Like I think most people, I would venture to say 99.9% of people don't want to commit mm-hmm. crime. They feel like they have to for whatever reason mm-hmm. or their their chemicals and their brains or the imbalance yeah. or whatever, you know, cuz like Johnson, this guy, he does he commits these two crimes and he has an attempted rape earlier before, but once he like once I th- feel like they get to him and he's he's put away and whatever, he feels badly. Like he, yeah, he does. expresses remorse mm-hmm. and regret and he has shame around it, which shows that, you know, I mean, as much as we can believe whatever we're being told in this book, which I have to assume that we can because we're talking about it, so I'm gonna trust the <laughs> authors. Um, it feels as if like when treated or institutionalized or whatever, I'm not exactly sure his full journey, right. but there is there is a sense that he didn't want to do that and that it was because of his mental mm-hmm. il- illnesses mm-hmm. that hadn't been treated mm-hmm. that allowed for him to justify it. And like even during like, because what happens is the people, the authors tell us what happened right. from Johnson. And so there are times where he like, kind of like tries to get out of it and then like feels compelled by the voices to continue. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, as much as you can believe someone who's retelling this heinous crime that they committed, you know, I feel like there's probably some revisionist history in there on his part, which I understand because like it's pretty gross stuff. But again, like as this all ties into prison and, and the accountability of the, of the justice system is like, we have to be more diligent 
with what we use to send people to prison because it's not just like a timeout. I feel right. like people think jail and prison is like a timeout. Mm-hmm. Like if you do something bad, you go to jail for a year. Like first of all, a year is a really long time. A year in prison, that is not a joke. A week in prison sounds like my worst nightmare. Especially because the conditions in prisons are totally inhumane because right. we view people as having caused crimes as deserving that kind of treatment. Right, right. Like other places in the world, the prisons look like college dorms. Yeah. I'm totally never going to be able to be elected office because I'm saying all this stuff. Not that I'm running. But I'm oh, soft a, on crime, I guess, is what I'm, I'm learning. You're proudly soft on crime. Well, but no, it's not soft on crime. It's just like crime. It's like prison as a last resort, not prison as like a holding place for people to go because right. we don't have any because we don't want to put the money other places. Right. And I think so. Here's the thing. So I have lived a great life. OK, I think the thing that he talks about with Sonia Smith, the one of the daughter's mothers and how her rights as a victim are completely ignored by the justice system and um, also, Brian uh, Stevenson talks about this in Just Mercy, like the victims' families. Like that is those are people who are literally victims of a crime mm-hmm. who have been mistreated by the system. So it's not just me saying like we need to be nicer to criminals. It's like this system is just not. It's not actual justice. Right. I'm of two minds about this though about the about the families of like murder victims because I think a lot of the time. I think, I don't know. I don't know how much of the time. I think some of the time they are very compassionate and they feel like, you know, they don't want to see mm-hmm. someone locked away or they're not sure or whatever. But I think on the flip side, there are also people who are extremely vindictive and hold on to yeah. non-science and just a feeling or an instinct they want because they want closure yeah. or justice. And so I feel like while while I understand like you want to take that into account somewhat, I also feel like it's really dangerous and a slippery slope because Mm -hmm. that also has a lot to do with race and racism. Mm -hmm. Like we so often ask black people and brown people to be forgiving and understanding and to give people a second chance. But like no one's giving these black men a second chance. Mm -hmm. Y'all didn't even give him a first chance. Like they were at work. One two was like, well, one of them was. But so I think that like, one of the prime examples of this to me is, are you familiar with the Brock Turner case? Oh, He uh-huh, was the Stanford uh-huh. kid who yeah. sexually assaulted mm-hmm. um, a woman. He was a swimmer. And what happened was the probation officer re- recommended a light sentence on him. And then the woman wrote a letter. And I guess when the woman had first spoken to the probation officer, she had said like, go easy on him allegedly Mm, and then she wrote the letter that was like that went viral and became this whole big thing which kind of like brought the story to the foreground even more and the judge basically was like this kid has a bright future in front of him we're not going to put him in jail at all and that is like a prime example of of using a victim to kind of like have a, a scapegoat like yeah. to say oh the victim wanted this thing and it's like she shouldn't she, not only should she not have to we shouldn't be relying on victims for punishment if we believe that this is the correct punishment we should have accountability within our system yeah. right do you know what i mean no i think that's so true and i think like survivor-centered justice is a really interesting idea that again i just like don't know what it, uh, it, yeah it's about because it's so different than the system we have now because i think like 
I do not feel at all sorry for Brock Turner. I right. think that he deserves like accountability for his actions. He also is operating inside a system of patriarchy and white supremacy. Right. That's not to excuse his actions. No. But it is like we need to tackle both the system and hold the individual well, accountable. Well, right. I mean, that's that's the other part of it is like do we believe that Brock Turner should be the person who gets yeah, the lenient see, sentence because that's right. what we hope for in the future? Or do we believe that Brock Turner should be hold to this, held to the same standards as Levon Brooks would have been Ugh, or as so Kennedy Brewer? But it's also you can't compare the two because right. Brock Turner is a white man and they are black men and we know how society views Right. Them. But I guess the question yeah. is like ideally – yeah. Who, Ideally, do we say, okay, oh God, we know. believe in less sentence, less harsh sentencing. We believe in second chances. We believe in the future of young, young men and women who commit crimes. And so therefore the Brock Turner sentence is correct. Mm-hmm. Or do we say we believe in, in, you know, vindicating these crimes. We believe in teaching sexual predators a lesson. We believe in our justice system as it is and that and that we should be convicting people and giving them harsh punishments to to encourage them not to commit crimes again you know because like brock turner a lot of me is like great people shouldn't go to jail for a long time but the other part of me is like why like this white boy shouldn't get off if all these young black men and brown men and women like selling weed yeah yeah. or trans people or people who are you know who are sex workers like these people shouldn't be any more criminalized than this kid for his crime that is violent first of Mm, all mm. you know like so i I don't there isn't a right answer i just think that like when we start to center the voices of victims and victims families i feel like it's we haven't figured out as a society what we want to be doing to be able to balance that input fairly because i think it's just like it's 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 we can't conflate the two because they're so different. Right, of course, of and course. And so it's just so, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I'm thinking about, like, all of the white kids who, like, commit – I don't know. I just read this article about um, these kids who did a, quote-unquote, senior prank that was basically a hate crime. Like, all this, like, racist graffiti against their black, black principal in, like, Maryland. Washington posted this article. I feel like this happens every And it's year. like – Yeah, right? And it's like, well, do we let them off? And it's – no, you know, I so I don't know. So now I've been talking about prison abolition and I'm like, well, those kids, you know, those kids and Brock Turner need to be held accountable right. for these horrible actions, but they're not because our society values their future. Um, right. And I don't know. And all of this is just like prison sentencing. And this isn't even like scraping the surface of yeah. the death penalty, right. which is also comes up in this book because Kennedy Brewer is sentenced yeah. to death. So he spends like five or six years on death row. Right. Um, as part, but he's in jail for like 13 years or something. And I don't know. How do you feel about the death penalty? I'm firmly anti-death penalty. Same. It's I, just not yeah. done right. Well, I also don't believe that the government, I believe that the government as an entity is supposed to be better than the people. Mm-hmm. So I understand if you, Allison, something terrible happens, God forbid, to one of your family members, you personally feel like I want that person to die, mm-hmm. but you are not the government and the governing body of millions and yeah. millions of people. Mm-hmm. And True. you don't speak for our identity. Yeah. And so to me, I mean, it's the same thing with like 
putting children in cages. Like that is not something the government should be doing because that is something that you're saying that I then believe in as a citizen oh, of this God, country, so you know? So like, I don't, I'm firmly anti-death penalty because I don't, I believe an eye for an eye is something you can enact on a personal level, mm. but I don't believe mm. that's something that the government should be enacting for on anyone's mm-hmm. behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a book called the, uh, autobiography of an execution. Hmm. David R. Dow, maybe Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of older. Um, And I think in the beginning of the book, he, I think this is where I got it from. He talks about how in certain cultures, what the government will do if someone's convicted of a crime, or maybe this is what they used to do in the old days. I can't exactly remember is they would give a family member a knife and say, if you want to physically Mm -hmm. kill this person, you can but we aren't going to do it for you mm. and you have to look them in the eye and you have to do it, oh, God. which all of a sudden makes it a really different thing. It's a whole other thing when, you know, a, a cop and a doctor go into a room and the person's blindfolded and they've been kept away from their family and it's like medical and they don't feel a thing, which is bullshit because they do, mm. which isn't even my problem with it. I, I actually don't have a problem with, I mean, there are problems with the way that death penalty is done, but my problem is just fundamentally, I think that it's wrong for the government to sentence any of its people to die. And we can't, I mean, I think for me, it's like, I like that a lot because my thing is just that it's totally, um, valuable. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, oh my goodness. It's not consistently applied. Right. It's just, it's totally inconsistent. It's right. It's littered with racism right? and classism and racism you know so it's like how can we trust it we can't right and so it's just the government you know because cops who kill black men or black people cops who kill people of color cops who kill people aren't getting the death penalty right it's innocent people like kennedy brewer right exactly well that's the thing it's like i i also disagree with the death penalty on a lot of like smaller issues like the fact that the, the likelihood to be put on death row has more to do with the color of the mm. victim than it does the color of the perpetrator. Mm. So white victims, murders of white victims are more likely to get prosecuted and uh, sentenced to death penalty than murders of black and brown people. But all of that to me is almost secondary to the idea of what does it mean yeah. to commit? Yeah. The, you know, like I, there's so much shit that's fucked up with how the death penalty is now currently. But all of that comes down to me to the idea of like, why are we putting people to death? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, did I force you to read The Reckonings? No, but I'm going to. Okay. So Lacey Johnson, who you all know is the love of my life, um, <laughs> she she's very into death penalty activism. And she actually wrote an article this year, recently, I want to say since March, about um, – God, I can't remember the guy's name. I don't know if you remember in Texas, I think his name was James Bird. He was a black man who was picked up by three white dudes. They put him in a truck. Then they dragged him behind the truck. It was like 1999. It was this horrible thing. It was a terrible hate crime. Um, One of those men was put to death recently. And Mm. Lacey Johnson writes this amazing, amazing piece about – I'll link to it – about how – even though he admits to it and says he would do it again, she's still fundamental. Like she basically is making the point that like, this is like dregs of humanity. This is the most racist, horrible, toxic, toxically masculine man. And even still he does not deserve to be put to death. And like how bird's son also did not want him Mm, to be put to death, mm, even though they mm. knew for sure he did it. Mm -hmm. And like he fully admitted and the other two men and this whole thing. But she talks a lot about like 
what the death penalty is. Mm. And and it's in her book also. There's a, a chapter called or an essay called On Mercy that's about mm. children with terminal cancer. And she kind of like juxtaposes these children with people on death row. And I just think it's like a really interesting conversation to be having like when we talk about less about specifics of systems but more about who we want to be as americans or like who we want this Mm -hmm. country to be and i think like fundamentally the death penalty is one of the things like about america that i don't think we've really thought about yeah you know i don't know not, not to get too philosophical, but from the book. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's away it's from the book. It's relevant to the book, but oh, you know, read the reckonings, read the autobiography of an execution. Well, the book I need you to read is the um, Alex Marzano Lesnovich book, um, Fact, the of, Fact a body. of a Body. Lacey they, recommended that book to me also. Yeah, they um, talk about how they were staunchly anti-death penalty, and then basically had their experiences as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse um, sort of triggered in them, and 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 while they were defending death row inmates who had um, committed sex abuse, uh, child sex abuse. And um, it is a, yeah, it's a phenomenal book. And now I can't remember the conclusion because I mean, it's just where you mean where they ended up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was still, I don't know, but well, read the book (laughs) book and then you'll find out I have it. I bought it because of you. Um, Before we wrap up, I do want to talk about the title and the cover. The cover of the hardback and the paperback are pretty much identical, um, which I always kind of like. I feel like I'm not missing yeah, out on anything. Yeah. What do you think, title? The title is The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. I thought it was really stupid. You don't like the title? <laughs> Talk about it. I just was like, what on earth is this book that Tracy wants me to read? Like, it's so hokey. Like, it's totally... Well, and it's funny because in the... I. I did like the book, so I hope yeah. I'm not shitting on it. No, no. And I, like a- lack of anti-racism criticism, relevant. And that aside, I think I did like the book. That said, like the title, I was like, this is um, in his in his short stacks. He was like, people thought it was going to read like a John Grisham novel and then it didn't. And I was like, well, that's why. Because the, the title, title is very like, interesting. I guess I've never read a John Grisham novel, but yeah, I feel either. like it's very like – um, sort of like true crime or like murder mystery title-y. Mm. And, and the book deals with a lot more history of coroners and forensics than I was expecting. Like it's more, it has more context. It's not just about the crime. And from, um, well, first of all, the blurb on the paperback is really bad. Is it? Um, the blurb on Goodreads is better. No, the blurb on the paperback is like totally, I don't know. I thought it was insufficient. I would never have picked it up. But the blurb on Goodreads was better in describing and making it seem interesting. Hmm. And then I started it and I was like, mm. but it did definitely get picked up. I what like The Cadaver King. I don't know if I needed And the Country Dentist. I know that yeah. Michael West is like a big part of the book, but I wonder if there was a way to write like something called like Cadaver Kings or something like mm-hmm. talking about people who deal in yeah. the death industry and like finding a different subtitle. It's just a really long title, yeah. which rarely works to me. Same. And I just, it feels a little, yeah, it just feels a little hokey. Yeah. Like, but I don't hate, I didn't dislike it. Like I actually think that it works and I think it kind of like peaks interest. And I think the problem with it is that it's long and you can't always remember it. Yeah. Like I'm like, I, the way that I actually first, first, first heard of this book is Nancy Rommelman who wrote oh, to the bridge uh-huh. when she was on cool. like last year, she said it was one of the last like really great books she'd mm. read. And I remember 
hearing it. And then I was at Skylight Books, which is a bookstore here in LA, at Aro Kwan's book event. And where I was sitting, the book just happened to be that's facing so out on the bottom <laughs> shelf. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that's that Nancy book. And so then I saw the cover and that's what made the book stick with me. The that's cover, funny. I think, is really powerful. Yeah. And I think it's like very cool and artsy in a way that often I feel like true nonfiction-y books aren't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just... It just didn't seem like something I would pick up. Yeah, I agree. But that's not to say... But I actually did like it. Yeah, I don't think the title does is fully connected to the contents of the book. Yeah. But I do I do like Cadaver King. I think that's like kind of like... Catchy. Catchy. Yeah. Well, that's what everyone calls it. Right. Cadaver like, King. I would never say... Because I, I also couldn't remember if it was the country. Or the, or county. the county. Me too. Then when you were on the, your interview with him and you said country, I was like, oh my God, she got it wrong. But no, it's country. No, it is country. Yeah. I didn't get it wrong. No, don't, sorry. <laughs> don't at me. It's country. I'm no, looking at it now. Right, no. right. But um, do you like the cover? Are you into the um, cover? Well, so there's a hearse on the cover, right? And like does um Hayne drive a hearse? I wouldn't think he no, did. No, but the guy he was friends with who then oh, like went. Jimmy yeah, Roberts. Like, yeah, Roberts. He would have. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I thought it was fine. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm glad that you, we, you helped me pick this book because I don't know that I would have read it anyways, but I learned a lot. Yeah. I, it's the kind of thing because there are so many books in the world, I just wouldn't have prioritized reading it, but yeah. I learned a lot from reading it. So that's yeah. why I like to do book clubs and stuff because they get me to read that's how I feel too. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel like about how we put books in general yeah. on this show is I'm like, we should try something we've never done exactly. before. Even if you don't like, I mean, I liked it and you liked it, yeah. but even if you don't like it, or even if you have a lot there's of criticism, so there's a lot to discuss and there's a lot to engage with. I personally actually love the cover. I think it's like very catchy and mm -hmm. sticky. I know it's it not very a, foreboding. Yeah. Like I love how there's just like this tiny, tiny portion of the cover that even really matters. Like mm -hmm. the top is basically black and the bottom is basically like green but yeah i just really i think it's aesthetically pleasing and as someone who you you can relate you read a lot of nonfiction, and i think a lot of times nonfiction covers lack creativity so or like imagination or like often even just like a visceral mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. like for example i love how to be anti-racist but i think that cover is not Mm. It doesn't talk, it doesn't yeah. connect to uh -huh. the contents of the book uh -huh. at all. And it doesn't connect to human, like, yeah. I'm not like, no oh, I'm dying to pick it. that yeah. up. Not that you should judge a book by its cover, right. but like this cover has intrigue to me. But I feel like because that title is so strong. Yeah, sure. That's fine. And that sure. title cover. But like Sam from the beginning cover is also not great. Yeah. Like, I feel like sometimes I think. I don't know. I can think of so many. Just Mercy Fiction. cover is not oh, great. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Blood in the Water cover is great. Really good. Really good. Tinderbox cover is great. Yes, that's true too. But I just think that like oftentimes nonfiction covers don't yeah. get, they mm -hmm. don't get the like artsy Love. treatment uh -huh. that they should get. And I think that's sometimes why people don't think that they want to read nonfiction. Yeah. Like even subconsciously, even though I'm not accusing you guys of not wanting, not judging a book by a cover. But I do think we all do it. Mm -hmm. And I wish that mm -hmm. publishers who publish these amazing books with all this research and hard work took it more seriously. More and like, covers. yeah. Yeah. Because even if it's not exactly the book, that's like beautiful, beautiful nonfiction covers. covers. <laughs> Don't steal it, people. We're doing it. It starts today. Well, we might already start it before. But yeah, it's true. Beautiful nonfiction covers. More of them. Yeah. Anything else you want to throw out about this book before we're done, before we wrap it up? Um, I don't think so. I yeah, I liked it. I'm glad that I read it. Um, I think there was a like yeah. Do you think 
let me actually, I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to tell you. I think for me, this is one of those books that's going to stick with me a lot longer than I thought that it would. I totally agree. Because I think that the information in it is going to come up over Mm -hmm. and over Mm -hmm. and over again. And like knowing more about junk science is going to be really sticky and like topical for the rest of our lives. I think that's so true because it's, again, I knew CSI. I love CSI. I knew it was not like, I knew it was not as portrayed, but I didn't know how, how badly it was not as portrayed, which is like pattern matching is not right. Like scientifically sound stuff like that, that it's like, now that I know that it makes perfect sense, but I really did not know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this book has have like longer Mm -hmm. returns than even I can imagine at this moment. Yeah. I just, again, that's what I would say is like, if this is the first book you've read on like, race in the criminal justice system it did not this is not go it. into it right so make sure you read other books right well this book definitely is not race in the social ju- in the uh, criminal justice system this book is like very niche niche yeah. niche criminal mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. for sure which is helpful to know yeah i think so i definitely think so okay we're gonna wrap it up allison thank you so much for being here thank you tracy yay and um hi becky oh hi becky <laughs> Uh, the Cadaver King and the Country Dentist by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington. It's out in the world. You can get it in paperback and hardback wherever you get your books. We're linking to that. Everything else we talked about in the show notes. And of course, Allison's social media handles as well. Allison, thank you for being here. Thank you. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Okay, we're done here. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Allison Punch for being our guest. Everything we talked about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.